Dave Rushtuni, Easy Chair Number 89, January 18, 1985. This morning, Otto Scott and Mark Rushtuni and myself will be discussing a, an area of major concern to all of us. We have an original title for it, suggested by Otto, War and Peace. Now, this is not an easy subject to discuss. When you discuss war and peace in our era, you enter into the twilight zone, I, I do believe, because there is such a total lack of realism and unwillingness to face the ordinary facts of life that uh, it is impossible even to start an intelligent discussion of war and peace with most people. They are determined to have reality mean what they say it should mean, and therefore they begin a discussion of war and peace in terms of presuppositions that have no relationship to the real world. Let me illustrate. I have in my hand a high school textbook in use all over the country, although it may have been replaced in the last year. The title is A Global History of Man. If I may digress a moment, this global history of man has very little in it about uh, the Western world, and all history up until the present gets only a limited number of pages. Then you come to uh, the major world uh, cultural areas. And the first is the Soviet Union, the second Latin America, then China, then India, then Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. Nothing about the United States or uh, Europe. Uh, previous section speaks of Europe as though it belonged to the past. As it uh, deals with war and peace, this textbook tells the students, and I quote, In 1953, the Cold War began to ease a little. One reason for this was the death in April 1953 of the suspicious and dogmatic Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin. His successor, Nikita Khrushchev, was just as much a communist, but he called for a peaceful coexistence rather than cold war with the rest of the world. Another reason for the improvement was the ending of the Korean War in July 1953 and the Indochina War in August 1954. Perhaps more important was the growing feeling on all sides that war had become impossible an impossible way of settling international disputes. End of quote. Now this is on page 204 in a book of, well, uh, about 750 pages. And the rest is written on this premise. The Soviet Union wants peaceful coexistence. The inference is, why are we in the United States making problems? Why are we the suspicious and distrustful ones? The concluding uh, sentences of the uh, book
book deal with the future of the United Nations as the World Peacekeeping Agency. And it says of the uh, UN, consequently the fate of the UN, like that of the League of Nations, will be settled by the policies decided upon by the great powers. The League was doomed because certain great powers were willing to resort to war in order to gain their ends. If this happens again, then the organization inevitably will go the way of the League. Perhaps the knowledge that nuclear war will leave no victors will prevent a repetition of this dismal past. This is the world's biggest hope, and if this hope is realized, then the United States, the nations, has a future. End of quote and end of book. Now, I've gone to this book because I began by saying that the discussions were in the twilight zone. Two presuppositions of this book, among many that are false. One, that uh, the Soviet Union wants peaceful coexistence, that they're a peace-loving country, and we need to understand this. Now, that's an illusion. How can you have a realistic discussion of war and peace with that kind of illusion? Then the second, as the concluding sentences make clear. Their hope is that the knowledge, to quote again, that nuclear war will leave no victors will prevent a repetition of this dismal past, unquote. The world's great hope is not a faith, but fear. They're pinning their hopes on the fact that if we make enough people afraid of war, it will bring about peace. And so the peaceniks today are dedicated to this kind of thinking. Create fear among people. Create fear through television programs, through films, through textbooks like this. And then we will have peace. Well, this is Twilight Zone thinking. It is an illusion. And this is why to discuss war and peace is difficult because it's hard to get through to people who are determined to believe things that are nonsense. Well, with that introduction, I'll uh, open the floor. Otto, do you want to make some comments now? Well, <clears throat> I don't believe this is new. The... Uh, whole argument was mounted by the intellectuals at the turn of the century. At that point, they argued that the world had become so educated and so civilized that war was impossible and unthinkable. And they mounted a determined campaign against the empire builders of their day, uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, on our side. Uh, the Churchills and his sort on England's side and so on. And as we know, that whole era culminated in the bloodbath of World War I. Well, if Mr. Roosevelt had won the election of 1912, 
it's very possible that we would have gone into World War War One uh, would have been very brief, because he wanted to go in immediately on the side of England against Germany. And if he had, if the United States had, in 1914, the chances are that war would have lasted a year or 18 months, and we would still be living in the world of our grandfathers, great-grandfathers. Unfortunately, we got Woodrow Wilson, and Mr. Wilson expressed all the shibboleths of the Twilight Zone people that you're talking about. He argued that World War I could be turned into a war to end wars. He argued uh, that the League of Nations could freeze the boundaries of every nation in the world so that there would never again uh, be a war because a war wouldn't be allowed. And in 1921, after the League was set up, without our official participation, but what most people are not taught is that we unofficially participated in all the crucial decisions of the League of Nations. In 1921, the Peaceniks mounted a big campaign for disarmament. It culminated in 1927 in a disarmament pact in which capital vessels of our various navies were sunk and what was called the 553 ratio was set up, in which England's navy was put equal with ours, or ours equal with theirs, which would be a better way to put it, and Japan's navy was three-fourths of the size, or three-fifths of the size. Now, the effect of this was to weaken England. And the argument was that the real threat of war came from the big navies and the competition between the United States and Britain on the high seas, with Japan coming up as a, as a new competitor. That was the argument in 1927, and the Kellogg-Beyond Pact, which was signed and which led to the scrapping of ships, resulted in the various participants receiving a Nobel Peace Prize. In fact, however, at that point, Germany was arming to the teeth inside the borders of Russia, and Russia was arming to the teeth using German technicians. So the rising threat of war was from Germany and Russia in 1927, and not a single public statesman in the West was aware of it. All we succeeded in doing was pulling down our strongest international ally and opening the gates to our strongest international competitors. And that is an illustration of just how cuckoo mm -hmm. these kind of campaigns can be. Yes, and it's interesting, too, that uh, World War I would have ended in a stalemate with no nation collapsing if... Wilson had not given assurances that we would ultimately be in the war. There would have been a negotiated peace very early, but they continued waiting for the U.S. to come in, and the result was they created an atmosphere of collapse and revolution among the losers. Mark, is there anything you'd like to uh, interject at this point into our discussion? Well, when you were talking about this great fear, there's uh, I've noticed there's also an attitude that 
uh, it's not worth uh, fighting uh, that uh, we don't want to, it's not worth the fight to win we have too much to lose by defeat and so therefore give up let the other guy get ahead it's it's a surrender better red than dead it's, well this was the argument that was mounted in the Vietnam War that it was ridiculous to talk about victory <coughs> we were told time and again by the left and by the liberals that victory was impossible but it proved not to be impossible for the other side mm -hmm. and when the other side won there were people who came in New York and danced in the streets in exultation at our defeat. It's not worth fighting for anything, and we don't believe in anything worth fighting for. So we don't want to lose, and we really don't believe in any winning. Right. What is the old Greek saying? A coward dies a thousand deaths, a brave, brave man but one. But, you know, during the 20s, the great scare was air raids. An yeah. Italian military expert had wrote a book in which he said that air raids would make it impossible for anyone to survive. And he went into horrendous details about great cities in flames and people buried in the rubble and so on and so forth. And I remember one of my early memories as a boy, uh, I guess well, I wasn't too young, 12, something like that, uh, seeing All Quiet on the Western Front in a movie in New York, and the place was so packed that they had camp chairs sitting behind, uh, placed behind the aisles to allow all the ticket buyers to have a place to seat, to sit. And I recall as we left the theater, my mother saying, well, I hope my boys never go to war. And that all, all quiet on the Western Front, what price glory... Uh, there was a whole spate of yes. anti-war films and books. And then the uh, moral rearmament began. Yes. The moral rearmament movement, they had four perfect absolutes, perfect truth, perfect justice, and several other perfects. And uh, this, in a, of course, in an imperfect world. Uh, by that time, Mr. Hitler had come along, and the German Foreign Office took a look at moral rearmament and decided that it would help their foreign policy. So they decided to send some spies in, some agents in, to divert it into disarmament in Britain and in France and in the United States. Now, these agents were given unlimited funds, and uh, I was told about this by an intelligence expert, and he paused at that point and said, how many agents do you suppose they sent in? I said, oh, a hundred. Oh, he said, no, they sent in three with unlimited funds. And they did divert moral rearmament into disarmament. The liberal temperament uh, was as intense then as now, and it has learned nothing. I was in school. I recall the uh, Briand-Kellogg Pact to outlaw war, which almost every nation in the world signed. And we were told in school that this was the death of war, that war was now illegal. 
and no nation henceforth would go to war. Well, they'd all signed. Yes. And it's the same uh, kind of liberal illusion which dominates our thinking today. They do not believe in uh, the depravity of man. They are convinced that all of them, as good humanists, have an awareness of uh, truth as they see it, and therefore they are all working for common objectives. Well, there is a, a, a number of uh, arguments that fold into this. One is that they're people the same as we are. Well, they're people, yes. But to say that they're the same as we are is to argue that everybody is created by some sort of cookie factory and that we all come out the same. Uh, we don't. It's a big world, and there's room in it for a great many diverse ways of looking at things. Time and again now we have been told that the Soviet military journals, military lectures, military academies, and military leaders have decided long time ago that nuclear war is winnable, and they have set up the world's largest and most elaborate self-defense system for the people. They have underground tunnels, they have factories in the Urals, behind, beyond the Urals, they have cities that are not on the maps. They have factories that are underground and so forth. They have tunnels, air raid shelters. They have regular drills. And they do, in effect, what Switzerland does. They have set up a planned program of survival in the event of nuclear war. The United States has been told that any effort at self-defense, at defending the population of this nation would provoke the Russians and increase the chances of war. Yes, with regard to the High Frontiers Project, or Star Wars, as the press calls it, within the past week we have been told that it will be used, if it is at all installed, to protect our defenses, our installations, not the people. That even goes to what Otto was saying about... Uh, not defending ourselves, even goes to the extent of a lot of hospitals and doctors will not participate in planning for a nuclear attack because, well, that's to say that we could accomplish anything by, uh, by trying to do anything after a nuclear attack. If there's a nuclear attack, it's all over. Therefore, let's pretend, let's act as though it can't happen and it must not happen. Therefore, we don't, we don't plan to help people in case something happens. So a lot of hospitals have refused to do any planning in such an event. Well, they've adopted the Soviet argument that any effort at our self-defense is a provocation. Now, the Soviets constantly use this word. If you have a complaint, that's a provocation. You're trying to bait them. You're trying to start trouble. And you know, on a personal level, you've been, we've all been in situations where you, you raise your voice or you put your hand up to the teacher or you walk to your employer and say, now I have a complaint. And he begins to treat it as a provocation. You're trying to start an argument with him. Well, this, of course, is the response of a bully. And in effect, we've been bullied out of the right of self-defense. And if we want to go into that, 
the recent shooting of four would-be uh, muggers, intimidators might be a better word for it, in the New York subway, was treated as a provocation and not as an act of self-defense. Yes. He shouldn't have been mugged, but he shouldn't have defended himself. He certainly shouldn't have defended himself. No, that's he's taking the law into his own hands when he defends himself. That's our attitude, not only with regard to that man in the New York subway, but with regard to our foreign policy. Anything we do to defend ourselves is provocation. Well, uh, let me throw in another aspect. We do have a liberal leadership the world over that is very much dedicated to uh, liberal illusions. Uh, the exception would be the Marxist leadership, which has no illusions. It is radically cynical and skeptical. Now, these people really are bent on what amounts to a policy of surrender. But at the same time, there's another factor. I'm not talking now about the liberal sympathizers and the public at large, nor all the peaceniks that have been uh, sold the gospel of total fear. I'm talking about your good, stable, God-fearing citizenry. These people are by and large totally distrustful of any military engagement because they do not believe that the leadership in this country will do anything but sell them down the river, that they will go to war and give their lives in vain. They're ready to die for their country, but not for the leadership. Now, for some years, and I do believe that it began in World War II, there has been a growing distrust by the average draftee towards not the military leaders, but the political leaders, that they are not interested in fighting to win. This was true in Korea especially and in Vietnam. So that I have known, and I've mentioned this once or twice in the past, a very uh, militant, hawkish people, very, very conservative, who after Vietnam told their children, and they had been very hawkish up to that point, if I ever catch you fighting for this country, I will disinherit you. It's not a country worth fighting for with its leadership today. Now, that attitude is very prevalent, I submit. I've encountered it all over the country. And it's by people who are very patriotic, who would be glad to defend this country if they felt the leadership was ready to defend it. But they feel that they will be so much sacrifice, human sacrifice, in the event of any war for a political game which is not geared to the best interests or the defense of the people. Well, there's pretty good basis for that suspicion. 
At the end of World War II, the United States combined with the Soviet Union to strip the West of all its colonies. At the same time, the United States stepped back and allowed the Soviet Union to pour into many of these areas unopposed. In Korea, we didn't fight to win. We fought for a stalemate, and that stalemate is still in existence, and no peace treaty has ever yet been signed. In China, before Korea, we decided that the Chinese communists presented a, a better appearance than our wartime ally under Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalists. So we embargoed China, and in due course, the Chinese nationalists ran out of ammunition, they ran out of bullets, and we lost China to the communists, or China was switched to the communists. The same sequence was played out in Cuba, another longtime ally. Batista was embargoed. His troops ran out of bullets. This sounds very simple, I know, but it's a fact. Mm -hmm. And Castro entered Havana without even having to fight a battle. Then we did the same thing in Nicaragua to Somoza, another longtime ally. We are on the verge of dumping our allies in the Philippines and allowing the communists to take over there and our allies in El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica. Every ally of the United States so far has been betrayed, and Israel is foolish if it believes that its turn will not come because our history under the present leadership has been one of persistent, constant, and inveterate betrayal all the way down the line. Well, going back to what you said on, on the uh, fear, fear is cultivated. If you notice, very, one of the popular tactics of the media now is to publicize elementary school children's protests about their fears of nuclear war. What do elementary children know about what they're taught? Their, uh, their efforts are, are getting rather absurd even to bring... Children they've taught uh, to mimic their lessons about nuclear war into the into the argument. Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, parents are reported uh, the children come home crying because they're not going to live very long because of uh, nuclear war and what. Uh, our fascist leaders are uh, going to do if they gain power to provoke nuclear war. Well, this, of course, is a method of spreading panic, spreading fear. Uh, the bears in Wall Street periodically try to spread panic because when the stocks plummet and fall, uh, the bears make money. And... Uh, much the same is true of politicians. Now, the press will turn around on one hand and argue that fears of war are an instrument of the Pentagon to get a bigger budget, while at the same time the school teachers are preaching surrender. Right now, the atmosphere in the United States is very similar to 1937 and 38 vis-a-vis -vis Hitler. Only worse. We regard the Soviet Union as Medusa's head. We turn to stone at the thought of it, let alone looking at it. 
And no discussion of the Soviet Union is permitted on a public level. If you listen to Crossfire, for instance, Braden interrupts and diverts any criticism of the Soviet Union. And so do most of our liberal commentators. They'll say immediately, well, we're just as bad, and it takes two to, to, uh, to make a war. Uh, the man who shot the robbers in the subway was joining in violence. So uh, self-defense is violent, and violent self-defense is to be abjured. In the meantime, children are being taught all kinds of wrong lessons about the human race. They're being taught about the Holocaust. Now, the Holocaust is a terrible event, an awful, ghastly event, of which everyone should be apprised, but they should be apprised of all the other Holocausts as well. And they should be apprised of the fact that these have continued through the centuries under bad leaders, under people who have whipped up hysteria and led the massacres. And also, they should be taught lack of self-defense can result in the destruction of a people. Yes. Uh, let me now turn our attention in another direction for a while, back to ancient history. Assyria and Babylon refined a technique for the destruction of countries. One of the things they did to make it possible to invade any country was to send in state-controlled merchants. These merchants would go in with all kinds of goods which were sold on credit to the peoples. They created a debt economy among the people so that the people would be heavily burdened and oppressed with debt. Instead of living simply, they were living in terms of all kinds of luxuries which now had become necessities to them. Only when Assyria and Babylon had created this kind of a debt culture did their armies begin to march. And then what they did to add to the weakness of a people who were debt-ridden and therefore were not truly a free people was total ter terror. Assyria in particular uh, perfected this method. They would make a point not only of total terror, uh, creating mountains of human heads, mountains of human bodies, uh, skinning prominent peoples alive, and making sure that news of that and pictures of that would circulate throughout the entire Middle East. They would terrorize these people who had lost already a sense of freedom through debt. Well, this correlation between debt and loss of freedom, which Assyria and Babylon perfected, has held over the centuries, although nobody has called attention to it ex apart from uh, an article or two I've done on the subject. But it's a very important one. Today we have a world, the free world, so-called, is debt-ridden. The political orders are head over heels in deficit financing. Uh, 
the people are head over heels in debt. And this is always a prelude to disaster, to a loss of a will to fight or a will to freedom. The sad part is that this time we've done this to ourselves. Well, actually, our bankers have done it to us. And our government has done it to yes. us. Uh, when my grandfather bought a house along the Hudson at the turn of the century, he paid $700. And at that time, he was working on the brickyards for $10 a week. That was about 1900 So he paid a little over a year's salary for a house. Uh-huh. If it were possible to buy a, a decent house for a little over a year's salary, we wouldn't have... 30-year mortgages in which people pay three and four times the price of the house. And the government connives in this usury by making the interest that you give the bankers uh, free from income tax, which is a big break. They don't force you to pay income tax on money you've paid to somebody else. Uh, but going back to the, to the fear business, uh, psychologically, I was taught, and, and by print, by film, and by lectures and so forth, that most people get terrified in moments of war and risk to their life and so forth. In World War II, I discovered that that's nonsense. I was in London during the Blitz. I was on the ocean when the U-boats were roaming around. I saw ships go down and men drowned and so on. And I never saw anybody show open signs of fear or hysteria or dramatics. There were no weeping, there was no shouting, there was no cursing or anything else. The average person is physically very brave. The human race is physically very brave. Otherwise, of course, wars would have been impossible a long time ago. There's a great deal of moral cowardice, but very rare physical cowardice. Uh, that's, a, that's a very big point, that people are being misread, they're being mistaught about one another, the children are being taught erroneous things about human nature. Human nature is better than this. Now, I'm not going to argue that panic isn't possible. I think it was Adam Smith who said, uh, you can have a group of gentlemen in the field fighting, and strict discipline isn't necessary because the gentlemen are disciplined. This is not true of non-gentlemen who will turn into a disorderly crowd. What's going on here is an effort to turn this nation into a disorderly crowd and to reduce and eliminate the idea of the self-disciplined individual who doesn't need the same kind of controls. You mentioned earlier the films that appeared in the 20s, like All Quiet on the Western Front and What Price Glory, uh, which were anti-war. An interesting fact is that when I was a student at the University of California at Berkeley, and I understand this took place elsewhere across the country, during the time of the Hitler-Stalin Pact. Uh, suddenly, there was a tremendous drive for peace, 
And these old films were trotted out and shown in Wheeler Hall. And the uh, students in uh, the history classes were told that uh, this was going to be their class session for a particular day. So we would uh, pile into Wheeler Hall, uh, fill it, to watch these films. Of course, once uh, Hitler and Stalin uh, disagreed, the temper changed, and we no longer saw those films. But I wonder now how much uh, in the way of anti-war films and propaganda takes place in grade and high schools across the country. Well, we have a very peculiar world situation. The fifth column for the Soviet world, or for the communist world, operates throughout the West with impunity because the West is democratic and liberties are allowed and so forth. Dissent is allowed. And I heard on the air the other night, uh, this was brought up by de Borchgrove, talking about disinformation. And Braden immediately said, well, we do the same thing. Well, that's not true, because we don't have spokesmen for our side inside the Soviet Union, occupying lecture platforms, university seats, uh, jobs on the leading newspapers, uh, in television and on the radio. We don't have the same disinformation operating in Red China, we don't have our spokesmen in our enemy's camp. The, spokes, the dialogue is taking place only in the free world, only in the West. And it's amazing that as soon as press freedom vanishes in Vietnam under the totalitarians, our press is no longer concerned about it. When it vanishes in Nicaragua, the New York Times doesn't care. It only cares when they still have friends of the United States involved. And I wonder, I recall uh, years ago being told that disloyalty begins in the mind. And this is, was a rather extreme Latin friend of mine at the time in Venezuela who was discussing marital fidelity, and he, he tossed it out as though it was a, a, a given. He said, well... A woman's infidelity begins in the mind. And I thought, you know, there's something to this. If you begin to examine your own culture with disdain, you have already left. You've already parted. And we keep being told that the uh, far left in the United States is animated by patriotic motives. Uh, they were against Vietnam for the greater good of the United States. But the greater good of the United States never seems to involve helping the United States. Well, let me go back to something that I said earlier, this whole business of uh, distrust of leadership plus debt and what it does to a culture. I think the classic example of that is Rome. Uh, we have an illusion that Rome fell under the assault of the barbarian tribes, and that's a myth. Uh, Rome was not uh, 
destroyed as a result of a series of military attacks and militarily overwhelmed. There were millions of Romans. There were only a few tens of thousands of barbarians that marched into the empire. What happened was that uh, the Romans had reached the point where with oppressive taxation plus corrupt administration and leaders none of them could trust, no one felt Rome was worth fighting for. The general of the Roman imperial armies, a marvelous man who could have saved Rome, uh, was executed at the command of the emperor and the senate. The reason was simply they knew that he could defend Rome. The troops would follow him to the death. But they knew that he could then make himself the emperor. They were afraid of him. him. So they ordered his execution, and because he was such a law-abiding man, He allowed himself to be executed in front of the troops and told them, pleaded with them, not to make any resistance. They told him, we're ready to take over the empire with you and to defend it. And he said, no, we cannot have lawlessness, which was a mistake on his part. Because when they executed him, the army disappeared. Nobody felt there was any reason now to fight for Rome. And as a result, the barbarians did not meet with resistance. They simply walked in. Well, there's a modern parallel on the eve of World War II. France was in a state of advanced decadence. Its communist movement was the largest in Western Europe. And in the period before Hitler invaded Russia, they called it a phony war, In other words, this is a war that doesn't mean anything. There was a long period in which Hitler waited in the hopes that France, with his agents working inside it and the communists working inside it, it would collapse of its own accord. It almost did. When the Germans attacked, they had less tanks, they had less planes, they had less men, less guns than the defending French. The French had an almost impregnable Maginot line, which had to be outflanked through Holland and Belgium, and that restricted the fighting to a relatively narrow sector of the French frontier. They could have mobilized their forces in that area, but the French leaders were arguing and maneuvering for political advantage over each other in the endless parliamentary elections for office up till a week before Hitler invaded. When he invaded, France collapsed. There was no resistance. And I never will forget my horror, my shock. I was a young man. But it exploded the myth that all men will fight to defend their country because nobody in Western Europe fought to defend their country. France did not fight. Sweden did not fight. Norway did not fight. The Dutch did not fight. The Belgians did not fight in any true sense of the word. And in the East, the Romanians, the Bulgarians, and so forth, did not fight. So it convinced me 
that men will not automatically fight for their country. Yes, the interesting thing, too, uh, is the illusion under which France operated. In World War I, Germany had attacked through Belgium. But they refused to believe that that kind of uh, violation of a peaceable neighbor could take place twice in history. The Germans would never do it again. uh, They would never do it again. That was something that was such a violation of uh, decency, you know. Not even Hitler would do it. So it would have cost a fraction of what the Maginot Line cost to extend the same um, line across the Belgian frontier. But that was somehow provocation. It would be taken unkindly by Belgium, for example. So they didn't do it. And they made no attempt to station troops there or to defend that area. Now, that's the kind of liberal illusion that we are still operating under, and it's the kind of liberal illusion that marks every opponent of high frontiers. Well, the uh, illusion at that time was based on an argument mounted first by Ruskin and continued for a long time, still in existence. And that is that if you remove the causes of discontent, the other fellow will no longer have a reason to fight. Uh, This is an argument that rules out hatred. It rules out resentment. It rules out evil thoughts. It rules out the thought of loot and power and so on. But this argument was applied to Hitler, so they removed the various disabilities against Germany implanted by the Versailles Treaty on the theory that if these were all removed, Germany would have no further argument. The same argument is being presented to us now in terms of Central America. If we stop opposing the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, then there'll be no problem. I think we ought to look at what we've implied before, the religious factor. Proverbs 8.36 says, He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. So the Bible tells us that a people or a person who are not godly will be marked by a love of death. Now, this love of death can manifest itself in two ways. You can be, on the one hand, suicidal, on the other hand, murderous. And we would have to say that the United States today in its foreign policy is suicidal and the Soviet Union murderous, so that we have worldwide a love of death barking our world cultures, simply because they are godless. So we have to look realistically at the future and say the love of death is governing the policy of this country, of the Soviet Union, of Britain, and of every other country. The love of death clearly marked the British Parliament when they had a Soviet leader there recently who could indulge in a tantrum over a question and nobody wanted to be critical of him for that. 
Well, it comes out in the United States in a denunciation of life. Our public entertainment channels, with the exception of sports, portray the United States, culturally speaking, as one of the levels of Dante's hell. So does our literature. It's filled with despicable types, characters, and behavior. And the, uh, the net result of this kind of diet is that your stomach turns over and you begin to wonder if anything is worth living for. And that, of course, is the point. Yes. Now, all the joy in life, and there's lots of it, the endless opportunities, is left unmentioned. The idea that we might outwit the Soviets, that we might cause trouble for them behind the lines, amongst other people, we might goad individuals into attacking them, we might hit them in unexpected places, we might do all kinds of things to them, is absolutely verboten. It's absolutely forbidden to even speculate about that's one of the main reasons for the opposition to the strategic defense initiative, which Kennedy calls Star Wars to make it sound like an offensive device. But we can't outwit them. We can't change the whole game plan of, of, of military strategy. We can't, we can't uh, move into a new area and uh, get the advantage to them. Yes, uh, and there is this factor which you touched on, Otto, and I think is extremely uh, significant. Um, the uh, vicious disposition of our literature and our entertainment. I know someone, as uh, does Dorothy, very able, very intelligent, and uh, I would say a right-wing extremist. I couldn't disagree with this person's opinion and assessment of things uh, political and international. But they are not Christian. And as a result, they have been living uh, for 15 years or more um, in a... well... Uh, sense of hopeless gloom. This person is an able musician. But you cannot get this person to touch a beautiful musical instrument that sits in the living room. And the reason? Well, there is such joy in playing that instrument and it's a terrible thing to seek joy when the world is falling apart. Now, it's not surprising that this person has cancer now. There are many, many people who are willfully gloomy and uh, pessimistic, and they forget that uh, idiots, uh, moral idiots and moral imbeciles evil men rule in Moscow and Washington and London, Paris and elsewhere, but the almighty and all-just God rules on the throne of the universe. And therefore, we have no right to be cynical or pessimistic. So the element of joy must be there always. As Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord shall be your strength. Well, of course, this gets us around to kenosis. 
the idea that's been propounded by so many that it isn't Christian to defend yourself, to stand up, that it isn't Christian to even criticize what's obviously obnoxious and terrible, uh, that it's the duty of a Christian to uh, not only turn the other cheek, but to get down on all fours and put his face in the dirt, that Christianity is antithetical to all the elements which make for masculinity or femininity in the proper sense. Uh, this whole idea that, and I've had it said to me, uh, when I gave a sharp reply to a fellow in New York, he said, that's not a very Christian thing to do. And I said, well, you're not a Christian brother to begin with. Mm -hmm. Well, as I told you, Otto, when I wrote the paper on kenosis, I had some very heated responses to it people who felt that I had violated all Christian decency by writing such a statement. How dare I say that uh, to uh, surrender and to be a doormat to evildoers was unchristian. So there are a lot of people out there who think it is the Christian thing to do to lie down and let people walk over you and to surrender to evil at every turn. As a matter of fact, I've had uh, some correspondence with someone who in his personal life has, subjected, has been subjected to monstrous evil. In fact, I had a telephone call from him yesterday. And the reaction has been that because he made a stand, a very godly, principled stand, he was somehow a bad person. He had a duty to love this evildoer and uh, give in to them. Because how, by offending them, by making a stand against what they were doing, could he ever hope to convert them? Well, here he is, a businessman of some prominence, who has been one of the most... Uh, important members of this congregation, very, very generous in his help financially and otherwise to them. And they're treating him as the evildoer when he's the victim, simply because he made a stand. So he said, I'm leaving the church, which I think is a very healthy step. And uh, he is telling them in a letter what he thinks of their canotic faith, that it is unchristian. Well, look at the results in the Soviet Union. Look at the results in the areas where people were convinced that defeat is more interesting. I remember thinking during a bad period of my youth that the failures of life were more interesting than the successes that uh, a successful man, somebody once said, is presents a smooth, unbroken uh, facade like an egg, and it's hard to tell what goes on inside. And, of course, failures are apt to show you their intestines. They'll, they'll uh, tell you all about themselves at enormous uh, length, and they are interesting. But after a few years, I began to realize that they were failures because of their inadequacies and their errors to a very great extent. That's not to gainsay the fact that misfortune can't hit anyone. 
and you go through a period of failure. But a life failure is not possible to a person of quality because even if he fails in obvious ways, he's going to succeed and leave something of himself behind. And uh, I think now that this identification of uh, dramatic value to failure was part of the conditioning of my day. Because when you're young, you spend all your time trying to catch up with the culture, to find out what the culture is doing, because you want to be with those who are in the avant of the culture. And after you get beyond that, you begin to see the difference between observation and what you were told. And that's, of course, when you begin to come to other conclusions. Uh, I think that the United States as a nation has a chance, if the Constitutional Convention is convened, to adjust some of the things which are causing us so much trouble now. And I've had people object to the possibility, saying the wrong people might take over the convention. Well, that, of course, is ridiculous, because it then has to be ratified by all the states. And I doubt very much if the states are going to ratify something crazy. I have much more faith in the American people than that. But I do think we're at a critical point in terms of leadership, because we are being driven into the greatest Munich of all time. Munich was when the English gave away the Czechoslovaks, the English and the French. Our Munich, we have no one else to give away except ourselves. And this is a very serious thing. Yes. Our time is almost up. Mark, was there something you'd like to add? Well, uh, speaking of the the moral and theological consequences of um, uh, our attitudes about defending ourselves and it reminds me, wasn't it David who uh, prayed that, uh, no, realizing judgment was coming, that he prayed to God that uh, God would judge him directly, but that he wouldn't fall into the hands of his enemies? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that can be our attitude. Maybe the Soviet Union is here to judge us maybe for our obvious sins. Maybe God is going to use us to, to judge the Soviet Union. We don't know what the future is, but the future is in the hands of God. And uh, we can certainly pray that our moral weakness isn't an indication that um, the Soviets are going to be used by God to judge us. Uh, That's a very good point, Mark. I I do feel that we should pray with David that we fall not into the hands of men, but into the hands of God. For as great as his judgment, so great is his mercy. We need to fall not into the hands of our enemies, but into the hands also of our leaders, because nowadays there sometimes isn't much difference between them. Otto, would you like to add something? No, I think I've uh, exhausted my possibilities on this (laughs) enormous subject. (laughs) Well, uh, it's been... Good to be with all of you again to go into this subject. If uh, any of you have ideas of subjects you'd like to have us discuss at some future time, let us know. Now, we can't promise we'll discuss uh, whatever it is you're interested in because we don't claim to know everything about everything. But, oh, don't uh, say that. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll give it a try. So... 
uh, let Chuck Wagoner uh, know what uh, it is you're interested in. Thank you for listening, and uh, God bless you all.